You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, I want to invite you once again to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27, for those that may be listening later on the podcast, we are uh, working through Genesis chapter 27, verses 41 through chapter 28, verse 9. We've already read the text this morning, um, and so we're going to jump right into studying the passage together. Uh, For those that may be interested, we do have our um, notes that will be showing up on the TV screen today available on our shared folder through Google Drive. So if you have interest in accessing those notes, um, you can access those through the QR code that's in our bulletin and pull those up and save those and uh, reference those later if you would like to. All right. We said last week that we, um, we had looked specifically at Jacob stealing the blessing from Esau and how all that went down and how Rebecca and Jacob together concocted this plan to deceive Isaac in his old age, uh, thinking that he's on his deathbed. So they disguise Jacob as Esau. Uh, Isaac and Esau are kind of working on their own plan on the side. And so basically they've got this thing going on where they're trying to do it in secret, trying to uh, have Isaac bless Esau without anybody knowing um, probably because it was understood that God had already chosen Jacob. And so uh, Isaac is uh, favoring Esau and wanting to do this behind closed doors. And so he sends them off to go find meat to cook up this meal. And then they're going to invoke the blessing to Esau. Rebecca finds out about it. Um, She brings Jacob into the play. They try to manipulate the situation to get the blessing. They convince Isaac that Jacob is Esau. He receives the blessing. And then at the end of the account last week, we saw Esau shows up and He's devastated, and Isaac initially is shocked, but we see that he verbally reaffirms the fact that Jacob is going to be the blessed son because of the way that the events have transpired. We said last week from our summary sentence standpoint that while God's plans are always accomplished despite our failures, our failures lead to consequences being included into his plans. Let me say that again for us. While God's plans are always accomplished despite our failures, our failures lead to consequences being included into his plans. Okay, so we've said for the past couple of weeks that that God has established the fact that um, that Jacob is going to be the chosen son. The prophecy was there before before they were born, uh, before they had done anything good or bad. Uh, God reveals that Jacob is going to end up being the promised child. And so that becomes very clear to the parents early on. And then we see those events start to unfold, but we see Isaac seemingly deviating from that plan and really favoring Esau. Rebecca seems to really favor Jacob, maybe in response to the prophecy, maybe because she felt bad that the other son wasn't favored by the dad. Uh, for whatever reason, they kind of play sides and, and form teams and it's it's Isaac and Esau and it's Jacob and Rebekah. Um, and so we see God's plans come about that Isaac tries to bless Esau. God won't let that happen. But we see that there's some failure in the midst of all that playing out that Rebekah's deceptive and uh, lies to her husband. And um, it ends up bringing consequences, as we're going to see this week, that Jacob has to leave uh, the son that she loves so dearly and wants to be blessed and wants to be provided for and wants to be protected. He's forced to leave for 20 years. Um, and so we see some of the consequences. And so while we're reassured in Scripture that God's plans always happen, God's plans are always accomplished, even when we try to to uh, thwart those plans, even when we try to contradict God's plans, um, we can't stop his plans. So our failures don't deter God from doing what he wants to do. But our failures do mean that that consequences get included into God's plan. And so while God allows this to play out the way that he wants it to, and ultimately the end goals are accomplished, there are consequences that are built into his plan here that otherwise may not have had to have been there had uh, some of these characters been more faithful and more obedient uh, to what God had already called them to do. Okay, Um, so last week we saw some of the family tension that was created because God's will was set aside for man's will. Um, I think everybody kind of played a part in that. And then we saw some unnecessary consequences that are experienced uh, because people were grasping for God's will instead of trusting his will to play out the way that he had already said that it would. 
And I think we ended up resting on the fact that Isaac seems to come out of this whole account as the winner because he was the one kind of working against God's will. And by the end of the story, he is seemingly turning his heart back to the things of God. And we're going to see that kind of unfold a little bit more today. All right, I'm going to put our um, notes up on the board, starting with our summary sentence for today. So those that are um, using the notes provided, um, you can follow along with those guided notes. Our summary sentence for today. When God seemingly disrupts our plans, it provides opportunity for us to reflect and realign with his will if we have deviated from trusting him and his promises. When God seemingly disrupts our plans, it provides opportunity for us to reflect and to realign with his will if we have deviated from trusting him and his promises. We've probably all experienced a time in our life where we're pushing forward with our plan, our agenda, things that maybe we've even felt like God was calling us to do or that God wanted us to do. And then we encounter some roadblocks. We encounter some things that that kind of prevent us from doing what we thought was going to happen. I mean, it's in those times, and I think we see this in this text, it's in those times where I think it's, it's responsible, it's necessary to pause, to reflect, to make sure that what we're trying to do is truly in God's will and that God's not trying to stop us and prevent us from unnecessary consequences. Because we saw last week that Isaac had plans to bless Esau. We saw last week that Rebecca had plans to make sure that Jacob was blessed and she was willing to do whatever necessary. At all costs, it was about Jacob getting blessed. We saw Esau, rather than owning up to his responsibility to honor the the oath that he made to his brother, that he was going to sell his birthright, um, rather than honoring that, rather than than fulfilling his responsibility there, he kind of moves forward and wants to steal the birthright back. Um, We see Jacob kind of being a pawn in the whole thing. Uh, We don't see Jacob talking a lot. We don't see Jacob making a lot of his own decisions. He seems to be used by his mother uh, to kind of bring about her plan. But we're going to see that when God steps in and uh, kind of stops Isaac's plan and then Rebecca's doesn't play out the way that she had anticipated and now there's some increased danger to Jacob, that everybody's plans get stopped and then everybody has to kind of regroup and and make some new plans. Um, and, And again, when this happens, when God seemingly disrupts our plans and everybody in this story had a plan and everybody has to recalculate and develop a new plan. And some we're going to see reflect and realign with God's will. And then we're going to see others that continue down that path and try to force through and continue to deviate from trusting God and his promises. All right, we begin back in Genesis chapter 27. The deception has worked and Esau has not been blessed as Isaac intended and Jacob has stolen that blessing says in verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau's original plan. Well, we'll start by looking at the plan of Esau. But his original plan. So what we saw last week, his original plan was to regain the blessing. The blessing that was given to Abraham. The blessing that. Uh, culturally would have been passed down to the oldest son. Uh, but we've seen now on two occasions where Ishmael does not receive the blessing. God gives it to Isaac. We see now that God has, has dictated that it's to be Jacob over Esau. So Esau's plan is to regain that blessing and to do so in secret by following the plans of his father. Okay. We said normally this would have been a big public thing. You would have brought in everybody to witness the passing of the torch basically, but they're doing it in secret because they know Esau and, and, and uh, Isaac both know that this is contrary to probably what has been talked about because of the prophecy that God had given to the parents. And so they're going to do it in secret. And Esau's plan is to follow through with what his father's kind of leading him to do. Um, again, this wasn't Esau's plan any more than Jacob's plan was to dress up like Esau. These are plans motivated by the parents. Okay, But Esau's plan is to go along with what his dad is, is kind of coaxing him to do. All right. But in the midst of trying to work this plan out, we see, first of all, that Esau received an anti blessing rather than the desired blessing. Right. We saw him in tears last week, crying out to Isaac. And Isaac says, look, I've already blessed your brother. And he says, well, do you have anything left for me? 
It says in verse 39, Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you go restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. It's really an anti-blessing. There's not a whole lot of uh, hope and good news. Now, he's going to carry on, and his family's going to carry on, but they're certainly going to be in, uh, in a position of servanthood to Jacob's descendants, and that eventually gets broken down the line. But he's going to have to live by the sword and kind of fight for what he gets. Um, and so while Esau's plan was to steal back the blessing, he, in, in fact, ends up with an anti-type blessing. And then we see Esau show his true heart in sorrow. He shows his true heart in sorrow, and he shows it in such a way that it should be defined as worldly grief due to his desire to kill Jacob. All right? Paul talks about worldly grief in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Um, he talks about uh, what some may show to be an outward sign of confession and repentance, but, it, but it's not genuine. Um, and there's a difference between godly grief and worldly grief. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The idea of worldly grief here is that um, he's, he's grieved over the situation, but as we've been talking about, there's more of a grief about the consequences of his actions versus what he actually did. There's not a genuine repentance. And Hebrews talks about the fact that he sought repentance with tears and couldn't find it. And I, and I explained to you that in the context of what's going on there in Hebrews, the idea there is he wants to change the outcome and he can't. He cries to his dad and begs his dad to change the outcome. And, and Isaac looks at him and says, I can't change it. My word is binding and I've blessed your brother Jacob. So he's, he's crying for tears, but it's a repentance of wanting to change the outcome, not his actions leading up to this. Remember, Hebrews describes him as a, a sexually immoral man, as an unholy man, that there's been a, a pattern of behavior that's really allowed him to reap what he has been sowing his whole life. Um, and so Esau shows his true heart here, that his sorrow should be defined more as worldly grief. And we know that, in fact, because the text tells us that he immediately wants to kill his brother. Right. There's not a confession that um, that he has really messed over his life on his own doing. He's he's not confessing to his dad that he should have valued the promise more when he was younger and he sold it for a pot of, of porridge. There's no confession here. There's no repentance. There's no desire for change. He's mad. He's he's stirred up over the fact that this did not turn out the way that he wanted to, that his plans have been stopped. And there's grief, but it's a worldly grief. And we see that because he desires to kill Jacob. It says that he begins to formulate a plan to kill his brother. There's a new plan then that he has to, to bring about. So his old plan didn't work. His original plan didn't work, we saw last week. Now his new plan in this text today, rather than repenting of his actions, he attempted to avenge his failures and atone for his actions. Rather than repenting of his actions, he attempts to avenge his failures. He wants to go after his brother and kill him. And then he also wants to try to do some things to clean his life up. And we're going to see how both fail. First of all, Esau's sorrow drove him to blame others rather than examine himself. Esau's sorrow drove him to blame others rather than examine himself. He immediately turns his attention to Jacob here, right? There's, again, there's no confession about the mistakes that he's made or the rebellion that he's been living in. Instead, his attention is immediately turned. The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And Rebecca, thankfully, by God's grace, identifies his hatred, sees it coming, the text tells us that it's his attempt uh, to comfort himself. It says, the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob for uh, her younger son and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. His sorrow has driven him to blame others rather than examine himself. He's wanting to comfort himself by killing, by reaching out in hatred towards his brother. His hatred for Jacob led him to develop a murderous plan. It's interesting to note that he wants to wait until his dad is dead. And so I, I contemplated a little bit there about why that would probably be the case. And I think most likely 
for him to go and kill his brother immediately would, would ultimately probably result in his banishment, right? With dad still being alive, the, the blessing then kind of comes back to dad. Um, and and the, the response, the retaliation would have been to banish Esau. So I think he's kind of waiting his turn, biding his time. Let's let dad die. Then I'll step in and kill the leader of our family. And then I'll become the leader of the family. So he kind of steps back and develops this plan. Okay, I'm going to let dad die. Now, remember we said last week, dad lives for, for many more years. They, they misdiagnosed him. Um, but in his mind, he's thinking, in the next few days, in the next couple of weeks, dad's going to die. And then I'm going to, I'm going to bring about this plan. I'm going to go after brother and I'm going to kill him. His sorrow drove him to blame others rather than examine himself. But we see in the text, uh, things play out a little bit differently. They're going to remove uh, Jacob from the situation. Then it brings us to a interesting passage where it talks about him marrying once again. And I want to make the point here that Esau wrongly believes that a renewed commitment to do good will atone for his past decisions. Esau wrongly believes that a renewed commitment to do good will atone for his past decisions. Esau evaluates the blessing of Jacob and deduces the blessing must be tied to obedience. Look in chapter 28 if you've got your Bibles open. As Jacob is before his father Isaac and receiving the blessing, it says in verse 6, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padanaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he already had, Mahalaloth, the daughter of Ishmael. So Esau's kind of observing this situation playing out. All right, and he, and he sees that his dad is going to really just go through with the blessing that, that there doesn't seem to be a, a turning of the tides here. I'm going to keep pressing forward, and, and my son Jacob's going to be the blessed one. And so Esau seems to be watching this from a distance. And as he's evaluating the situation in his mind, he deduces that, okay, my father is blessing my brother for his obedience or his coming obedience. He, he says, okay, my dad must love Jacob now because I've married these Hittite women. Remember the passage that we looked at last week started off with Esau marrying two women. And it said that it produced bitterness for Isaac and Rebekah. There must have been a lot of family tension there with these two women coming into their, their family. And, and, and that dynamic and the fact that Isaac's trying to lead his family to worship Yahweh. And you got these Canaanite women coming in that would have had a, a whole host of different religious beliefs. Causes a lot of turmoil, a lot of tension. So Esau kind of steps back and he's evaluating this and he says, okay, Jacob's getting the blessing because he's going to marry the right kind of woman. So maybe I can fix this situation by marrying another woman that, that my dad and mom will approve of. And so he reaches out to another family member, right? This isn't a Canaanite woman that he marries. This is a descendant of Ishmael who comes from Abraham. So this is a, fo a close family tie here. So he says, I'm going to go marry I'm going to go marry somebody too. And maybe dad will, will, will like me again. And maybe dad will want to bless me again. When he evaluates the blessing of Jacob and deduces that the blessing must be tied to obedience. And so Esau seeks to marry within the family to regain the favor of his parents and potentially a future blessing. What's interesting here, and I think this has gospel implications for us is that Esau is very quick to want to do something to make up for past things, right? Okay, so I've made some mistakes, and I've married some bad women, and I've brought some bitterness into my family's life. Let me fix it. Let me fix it by bringing another wife into play. And there's no signs that things got better, and I would imagine things only got worse because Esau, in his poor spiritual discernment, goes and marries from the line that's already been rejected, right? Like Ishmael was banished because he tried to kill Isaac. Right? Or, or, or had some hostility towards Isaac. So if anything, he probably makes the situation worse because he brings in a woman who would then say, you know what, like my family should be receiving these blessings and, and your dad is the one that got them and, and this isn't fair. And, but I was, I was intrigued in kind of thinking about this because I, 
I see this so much in our own fleshly tendencies when it comes to doing something wrong and there being something ingrained in us that God is still working on that wants us to resist confessing that we're wrong. And if we are convicted at all, the first response is, let me fix it. Let me do something to make up for it. I don't know if you've experienced this for those with younger kids, um, but yesterday we were at Adam and Jen's house and uh, Abram had, had screamed and yelled at Lauren and had done some inappropriate things as far as how he was treating her. And so we took him inside and we're having a conversation with him. And it was like pulling teeth to get that kid to say, I'm sorry, mom. I mean, we sat there for 10, 15 minutes. It felt like it was at least 10 to 15 minutes. It felt longer than that. And we're just saying, look, Abram, all you have to do is say, I'm sorry, mom. And then we can go outside and we can eat and we can play. And he sat there and he put his hands like this and he just started huffing and puffing and breathing heavy. I said, Abram, I said, you can get a spanking right now or you can tell your mom you're sorry. And, and, and because, because we're gracious, we continued to have that, that ultimatum. You can either get a spanking or you can say you're sorry. And he kept digging in. And, okay, you can say you're sorry or you can get a spanking. And finally it was like, oh, you're getting a spanking. And, and, and he cried and he hated it. And then we handed, I handed it back to Lauren and I said, tell your mom you're sorry. He dug in again, and 10, 15 minutes went by, and he just kept digging in, and he was just getting angrier and angrier. And finally, at the very end, it was, sorry, Mom. And we got it to, to eke out, and you're just thinking, this is a two-year-old, and he's already demonstrating that sin nature that we see in the book of Genesis, that we're born with it because of Adam and Eve and their rebellion. And there's something inside of us, that sin nature, that, that God is still working on and still sanctifying to where we want to resist admitting that we're wrong. And you never see Esau admit that he's wrong. At least in the, to the point where he comes and says, I'm wrong. Like he never comes to, to, to his mom and dad and says, I'm sorry for, for, for abandoning everything that you taught me when you raised me about the type of woman that I should select in marriage. And I'm sorry that I stepped out and went and married two women that had no desire to do the things that we're doing. Right? You don't see any confession uh, any sorrow over his lack of concern for spiritual things. We, again, know from Hebrews, he's sexually immoral. He's unholy. There's no confession of that. Instead, it's, let me figure out something I can do, some type of good work that will help earn my dad's favor. And that's so contrary to the gospel, right? The gospel is us confessing, it's repenting, and it has nothing to do with us doing something that will earn God's favor, right? Christ has done that for us. Christ has come and been the perfect lamb for us. And we sang, we confess today in our singing that, that Christ is risen from the dead. And that's what Romans 10 talks about, that if, we're, that if we're to be saved, that we have to confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. It's not about doing a list of things. It's not about trying to make up for our mistakes. It's not about saying, okay, I've done a lot of bad stuff. Now I've got to do a bunch of good stuff so that the, the scales will balance out and it'll be in my favor and, and my dad will love me again, right? When we think about it from a spiritual sense, it's not about coming to our heavenly father and saying, here's the things that I've done to make up for the bad things. And that seems to be Esau's motivation here. He says, okay, Jacob and dad have a great relationship right now. It must be tied to his obedience. But remember, up to this point, Jacob hadn't done a whole lot of good stuff either yet, right? And, and Romans reminds us that before they did anything good or bad, God had chosen Jacob, right? So it's not tied to obedience. But Esau, in his spiritual blindness, says, all right, the way to fix this is to go marry the type of woman my dad wants me to marry. Not to confess that I've made mistakes and made poor decisions is to try to make some good ones to atone for the bad ones. The implication from looking at Esau's plan here, Esau fails to realign himself with God's plan. He remains unchanged in his pursuits and never gains what he wants. All right, he had a chance to pause and reflect, right? His plan was stopped. They're in the tent with his dad. They're weeping together. The plan was to do this in secret. The plan was to steal the blessing, and we failed. And this was an opportunity to stop and say, okay, why did we fail? Because it's not part of God's plan. It's not part of God's will. We've been, in, we've been in disobedience. Specifically, me as your son, I've been in disobedience. But he remains unchanged, right? He wants to kill his brother. And then as he assesses the situation, he says, okay, brother's being blessed because he's obedient. Let me try to fix my mistakes by being obedient as well. But there's no confession. There's no repentance. He continues to pursue the things that he's been pursuing. And he never gains 
what he wants. Let's look at the plan of Rebecca now. The plan of Rebecca. Her plan uh, is seemingly not completely thought out, and she has to continue to react to the the changes in her plan. She immediately wanted to make sure that Jacob got blessed, and now that he's been blessed, she's having to recalculate and figure out, how do I keep my son, the blessed son, alive? Because now Esau wants to kill him. It says that news came to her, right? News came to her about Esau's plan. Um, her original plan... To secure the blessing of Jacob through deception. To secure the blessing of Jacob through deception. She planted the idea in Jacob's mind. Let's dress you up like Esau. Let's steal it from your father. Who intends to bless Esau. We said last week she obtains the blessing of Jacob, right? But we said that she's a loser in this situation because she already had it. Jacob already had the blessing. God had already promised it. So she obtains the blessing of Jacob, but it was something God had already promised to do. He had already prophesied that Jacob was going to be the inheritor of all things belonging to his dad, that he was going to be the inheritor of the blessing. And so she tries to manipulate the situation and ends up kind of creating a a bad situation for Jacob to where now she's going to have to lose her son. She obtains the blessing of Jacob with her original plan, but it's something that God had already promised to do. And so she, too, is forced to come up with a new plan. Her new plan is to secure the safety of Jacob. So it started off securing the blessing through deception. And now she's got to secure the safety of Jacob through manipulation. Rebecca learns of Esau's plan to kill. It says that the news came to her. This is another nod to God's omnipresence that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. That God is really everywhere. Right. He's everywhere. He knows everything going on. Like, I'm sure Esau probably at some point said, how do people keep figuring out what I'm doing? Right. Like, how does Rebecca, how is she always one step ahead of me? Um, you know, he, he's probably thinking, who, who's who's the mole in my in my tent? Like we keep making plans and somehow Rebecca, my mom, keeps finding out about them. And it's a nod to God's omnipresence. Right. That that God is everywhere, that God is working good for his children and and God exposes sin and allows sin to come to light. This is another example of that God's not going to allow Esau's plans to come to fruition. So Rebecca learns of Esau's plan to kill. And then Rebecca decides to save his life. But she decides to do it by sending him to find a wife. So the conversation plays out with her and her son. She sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, and Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? So she sits down with Jacob again, and she says, okay, we got to get you out of here. We got to get you out of here. We've got to save you. You're, you're in danger now. Okay, we, we've secured the blessing, and it took some deception to get there. But now we've got to get you out of here to save your life. And she has to resort to manipulation to get him out of town. Rebecca manipulates Isaac into thinking it is his idea to send Jacob away. Look what it says in verse 46. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Okay, so they have this discussion and she's she's kind of pouring out her heart to her husband. And she says, look, I'm so concerned about Jacob. I'm so concerned about the bitterness that we've experienced with Esau and his wives. We've got to do something to make sure that Jacob finds somebody different to marry. He can't marry a woman around here. We, we can't go through more years of what we've dealt with with Esau. Right. So she begins to have this conversation with Isaac and I think kind of plants the idea in Isaac's mind. OK, I'll fix this. I'll, I'll provide what my wife wants. And so he summons Jacob. To have a discussion with him. She uses the excuse of wife selection rather than safety for her reasoning. Which got me to thinking, why? Like, why would she feel the need to talk about who Jacob's going to marry and to try to get husband Isaac to move in the direction of having Jacob go if it's really all tied to the fact that she's scared for Jacob's life? 
she uses this wife selection material as, as the reason rather than the safety of her son. The only conclusion I could really draw from this is that she must have assumed that Isaac would not do what was necessary to remove the threat of Esau to Jacob. Remember when Sarah comes to Abraham? Remember she comes and says, look, Ishmael is a threat to Isaac, right? She comes to her husband and she's, she's straight up honest with him and says, I've got great concerns about Ishmael. Ishmael is doing some things that lets me know that Isaac's life is being threatened. Ishmael knows that Isaac is the blessed son, right? What does Abraham do? As much as he loves Ishmael, as much as he loves his son, he sends him away, right? Sends him away, gives him some stuff, gives some stuff to his mom, and they're gone. This is real similar. This is real similar. You would think that Rebecca could come to Isaac and say, um, Esau's a threat. You bless Jacob. God told you to bless Jacob. You tried to get around it, but ultimately God comes through. God's plans are secure, and you bless Jacob. And now Esau's a threat. We need to remove Esau. But for whatever reason, she doesn't see that as a viable option. I think this may be a nod once again to the fact that, that Isaac has failed in his, in his parental leadership in this family, right? There's been no discipline, according to the text, as far as Esau making poor decisions with who he's married. There's been no discipline that we've seen over the unholiness and the sexual immorality. Why do I believe that? Because Isaac's ready to bless Esau despite all of those things, right? Despite all of the unholiness and the sexual immorality and the women that he's chosen to marry that Hebrews talks about, he says, Esau, I love you so much, and I love your venison, and I want to bless you. So his, his, his mentality seems to be skewed. He doesn't seem to be ready to do the hard things when it comes to disciplining his children. And I think Rebecca may, and, and maybe Isaac's undergoing a heart change here, but I think she defaults to thinking this is how Isaac normally handles things. If I come to him and, and tell him that Esau's a threat, he's not going to do what's necessary. So I've got to manipulate the situation to get him out, to get Jacob out of here. As her plan's playing out, she anticipates Jacob only being gone for a short while, but never sees him again. We'll learn later as we study Genesis that he's gone for two decades. And what's sad about this is that in all of her scheming and planning, she really loses both of her sons, right? She says, I want to do this so I don't lose both of you. But ultimately, she loses both of her sons, right? She, she doesn't see Jacob ever again. He's gone for 20 years, and she dies while he's gone. Esau, she's, she's damaged that relationship, but on top of that, Esau relocates as well. And so ultimately her sons are both gone. The implication from looking at Rebecca's side of this is that she fails to realign herself to trusting God's promises. And she remains unchanged in her thinking and loses what she sought to protect. Right? We don't know how this plays out if she comes to Isaac and says, we've got to remove Esau. We don't know how that would have played out. But she doesn't trust God's promises. She continues to manipulate the situation um, she, she leads the family through manipulation with, with her husband and it results in her losing what she wanted to protect most. And that's her son, which brings us to the last individual we're going to look at. And that's Isaac. You'll remember Isaac's original plan was to bless his favored son, right? He wants to, to give the blessing to Esau. He's a manly man. He's an outdoorsman. Um, he's, he's everything that, that Isaac probably wants to be and wants his son to be. And so he's favoring his, his son and wants to bring blessing upon him. We saw last week that God halts that plan of, of Isaac and, and allows conviction to set in. We saw last week that Isaac admits to Esau, his plan to allow the blessing to stand. Remember, Jacob is fearful when he's talking it out with mom. What if dad tries to curse me? What if dad tries to retaliate? And, and all we see in the discussion with Esau is, is Jacob is uh, Isaac basically saying Jacob's going to be the promised son. I, I've blessed. I've I've blessed him. There's no going back on that. Right. There's some conviction, I think, that's set in. And Isaac realizes that God's plan is playing out, even though he tried to alter it. And then what we see in the text today is that there's a new plan in place for Isaac, and that's to bless his chosen son. It says in verse one, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Verse 3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. 
May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Isaac realigns with the revealed will of God here. Right? He tried to bless the other son, and now he's blessing Jacob. And the, the text kind of rushes through this. It says, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. But as I was reading this, I was thinking there was probably some tension there when Jacob got word that Isaac wanted to see him. You know, like, what's dad going to do? <laughs> you know, like, I've got the blessing, but now dad wants to see me. And it's like getting called into the principal's office. And I don't know if this is good news. I don't know if this is bad news. And this, again, is another another nod to the gospel, I think, here. Because really what Jacob deserves here is death. Right? I, I think if, 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 if it plays out the way that, that maybe we would have allowed it to play out, we would bring in this guy and say, okay, you deceived me, and at least you know, punishment is coming to you for this. And we don't see any cursing. We don't see any punishment. Uh, instead, we see Isaac reiterating the blessing, and there's no reason that he has to do this here. Right? There, there's no reason that Isaac has to redo what he's already done in the tent. I think this is a willing admission by Isaac I think he wants his son to see that he's willingly blessing him now, not due to the deception. Which again, to me, says this is Isaac realigning with the revealed will of God. Because prior to, he blessed Jacob thinking he was blessing Esau. That plan gets stopped. And again, when God stops our plans, it ought to warrant us stepping back and saying, am I in God's will or not? Isaac says, the reason this got stopped is because I wasn't in God's will. The reason this was hindered is because I wasn't going down the path that God wanted me to. And so he gets redirected and he realigns himself with the revealed will of God. And he does have more of a public profession here. And he blesses his son willingly. So that Isaac shows grace when Jacob rightly deserved death. Isaac preserves the purity of the blessed line by sending Jacob to find an appropriate wife. So, so Isaac's being a good dad here. We were finally seeing some good dad-like qualities out of Isaac, and he sends his son to make sure that the line stays pure. The language here is real similar to Genesis 24 when Abraham has the discussion with the servant about who to find for Isaac as a wife. Just to kind of give you some cultural understanding, why Esau, or why um, it was wrong for Esau to marry the Hittite women because we know that, that Laban and his people aren't God worshipers, right? Like, we're going to see that they bring idols, and, and, and there's, there's idolatry there. But from a cultural standpoint, the reason that Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah want the women back there chosen as the wives and not the Hittite women, from a cultural standpoint, the Aramean women, which is where they're coming from, uh, would, would typically embrace the religion of their husband. Okay, so if you're from the, the Aramean region where Laban and his people are, culturally, when I get married, I'm becoming one flesh with my husband. I'm going to follow his leadership and whatever his religion is, that's my new religion. It was different for the Canaanite women. The Canaanite women are typically seen as individuals who would seduce their husbands to join their lifestyle. Okay, so we're not talking about godly women versus ungodly women. We're talking about women who were going to give up to assume the identity of their husband and follow. And so Abraham says, we're following the right religion, so let's make sure we get a woman who's going to follow this leadership versus trying to seduce my, my son into following her pattern of lifestyle. So that's just going to give you an explanation as to why we're going back to, to Laban's people. They're not godly people. They're culturally supposed to be people that submit to the husband's way of religion. All right? So Isaac wants to maintain the purity um, next point, Isaac provides a distinctly pro-Jacob blessing, reversing his pro-Esau attitude. Like I said, this time he willingly blesses Jacob. Um, and what's really interesting, before we get to the last implication and the application, then we'll be done. Um, remember, Genesis is the book of firsts, right? And if you're not careful, you blow right over this. But in verse 3, it says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. If you take the Hebrew wording there, and then you go to the Septuagint. What's the Septuagint? Bible quiz right here. What's Septuagint? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. 
Okay, so that helps level the playing field when we're trying to compare New Testament concepts to Old Testament concepts. They're written in two different languages, but sometimes the way the Septuagint translates things, it helps us to see a New Testament understanding of the Old Testament. Okay, so the Septuagint translates this passage right here and uses language that's very similar to the language used for the church in the New Testament, right? So it's saying, may God bless you and and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you become a company of peoples. Not so that you become a company of your people, but a company of peoples. Because remember, the, the Israelite people were called to be a distinct nation, but they were called to be a light to the other nations. Right? They were supposed to draw other nations in to their worship of the one true God. And we see that explode in the New Testament, right? Pentecost, and there are people from all tribes and nations and tongues gathered, and, and they come to Christ, and, and, and the universal church really starts to, to blow up. And we see that today. And we were talking, um, gosh, I forget, forget what context I was talking about this the last couple of weeks. But, um, you know, in the New Testament, and where we're at today, it's so different than in the Old Testament, where in the Old Testament it was the descendants of Abraham that were worshiping God, and then when they weren't worshiping God, you really didn't have anybody worshiping God much. And now today we think about people in China, all across the world, Uganda, people that are worshiping Jesus from all different tribes, nations, and tongues. This is coming true. Be fruitful and multiply and become a company of peoples. Again, Genesis, book of beginnings, This is the first time this language is used in the Bible. This idea of a a unique gathering of people. And it's tied to the descendants of Abraham. All right. Implication. Isaac sees his error and realigns himself to God's revealed will, rightly changing his actions and demonstrating faithful obedience. Again, Isaac's kind of the, uh, the redeeming part of this whole story. He's the one that was on the wrong course pauses when his course gets disrupted and then gets back on the right course and has this pro-Jacob blessing where he's knowingly blessing Jacob, which again is, an, is, a, is pointing to the fact that he's gotten things right with God. All right, so going back to that summary sentence to wrap up, God seemingly disrupts our plans. It provides an opportunity for us to reflect and realign with his will if we have deviated from trusting him and his promises. How do we, I want to give you two things. How do we... Um, how do we make sure that we, we don't have to do this, that we don't have to realign ourselves? Um, two points of application that I want you to consider. First of all, the ingredients of an extraordinary family in Ephesians 5 through 6 must be followed to avoid similar turmoil. So the past couple of weeks, we've talked about family turmoil. We've talked about a husband and a dad who's not leading well. We've talked about a woman, a, a wife who's having to manipulate and lie and deceive. We've talked about boys who aren't being obedient and and making poor decisions that don't align with their dad's desires. How do we avoid that? Well, Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, I think, gives us the the ingredients for avoiding this type of family conflict today. I want to draw your attention to that. Ephesians chapter 5. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself, its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, but lest we think that the wives should just, should just, should just submit, there's a huge responsibility placed on the husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. And cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, that's not playing out with Isaac and Rebecca. But what Paul talks about here is that as the husband, so talking to the men right now, as the husband... Our role is to care so deeply for the sanctification of our wife that it mirrors Christ's intentionality with the purity of the church. 
We talked about this at our man up breakfast this past week that that as the as the husband of my family, it's got to be top priority that I do everything necessary to push Lauren to being like Christ. And if I'm doing that, if I'm if I'm putting her needs above my own needs and investing in her and wanting to see her grow spiritually, she's obviously going to want to submit to that type of leadership. Right. But we see Isaac, who's who's not really playing that role. We see Rebecca having to manipulate the situation because Isaac's not leading. But then it goes on to give instructions to children. It says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. That's something Esau did not do. This is the first commandment with promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. But then obligation comes back to the man here in verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A lack of spiritual communication between Isaac and Rebekah and a lack of spiritual leadership by Isaac towards his sons leads to the family turmoil. Right? I think there's a lack of discipline by Isaac towards Esau. I think that's why Rebekah felt like she had to manipulate. I think there's a lack of guidance regarding their relationships. We don't have any indication that Esau was told not to marry these women. And then we see Isaac waiting until he's theoretically on his deathbed before he even thinks about Jacob. Remember, Abraham got his life in order before he was on his deathbed and made sure Isaac had a wife. Isaac doesn't return the same favor to his son. He's waiting until the very, very last minute, and it's, it's only because his wife prompts him that he even starts to care about Jacob's relationships. I would encourage you to focus on Ephesians 5 and 6. Whether you're single or married, there's principles there that we need to draw upon to have strong, extraordinary families that don't produce the turmoil we've seen in this passage. Number two, the final thing, the threats of persecution and accommodation are real threats to our faith like they were for Jacob that we must anticipate. There's two things that are threatening Jacob in this passage. One, persecution, Esau may kill him. But two, while it's not the main reason, it's certainly a valid reason, there's fear that the accommodation of marrying a woman that's of the world is going to devalue his spiritual upbringing and is going to sway him away from the things of God. So there's two things that are, that are uh, a threat to Jacob in this passage. The persecution of Esau and the accommodation of the world. And those are threats to our faith today, right? We're promised trials and persecutions. Book of Hebrews tells us to be ready for those things. Book of James tells us to find joy in those things. But then the, the threat of the world and accommodating our lives to what the world says we should be doing is very real as well. To, to choose a husband or a wife based on the world standards. To pursue a job based on what the world says we should be doing. To spend our money the way the world tells us we should be spending it. To use our time and our resources and our energy the way that the world does, the way that our friends do, the way that our coworkers do. It's a real threat to our faith. I would encourage all of us to, as the summary sentence says, to, to step back and to, to evaluate, to reflect, and to make sure that we have aligned our lives with God's will and that we're trusting him, trusting his promises. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for this passage of Scripture. I thank you for hopefully bringing to life a story that we've heard numerous times and causing us to pause and to reflect. God, I'm thankful that you stepped into this story and you did not allow Isaac's plans to come to fruition. And you broke him and you brought him back to you. And God, I think it should be an encouragement to us that if we're truly believers, as we believe Isaac was, that you discipline your children and you don't let them continue down a path of sin and you stop their sinful plans. So God, as a child of you, I'm thankful that in my own failures and in my own tendencies to, to give in to my flesh and, and not yield to your spirit, that you love me enough to step in and to stop those plans of, of sin and you expose them when necessary. God, I pray that we would learn from this situation, especially as uh, husbands and wives, that we would uh, play our part, realizing that we are meant to be uh, displaying to those around us the gospel, the relationship of Christ in the church, and that we have roles to play in that, in that display. And God, I pray that we would see our roles 
as husbands to lead our families well, to love our wives well, to instruct and to teach and to be very intentional with our children as we raise them. And God, I pray for our kids that, that they would learn early and often the values of their spiritual upbringing, that they would not have a disdain for them as Esau did. They would not be willing to forfeit those things in exchange for the things of this world. God, I pray instead they would yield to the instruction they're receiving, both here at this church and through their, their dads leading them at home. God, I pray for our wives that they would be a model of what it looks like for Christ to submit or for the church to submit to Christ as they submit to their husbands and the leadership that their husbands provide. God, I pray that you would protect us from accommodation towards this world. For those that are single, that are still pursuing and desiring relationships in our church, God, I pray that you would bring godly men and godly women to them. Not just to satisfy their longings and needs, but to provide a better opportunity for the gospel to be put on display. God, I pray that you'd protect them from, from yielding to uh, worldly encouragement to maybe settle for something different. God, I pray they'd wait upon you for your provision in that area. And God, I pray for all of us as we do our best to walk in your spirit and not in, in our flesh and we make plans uh, every day, every week. That God, when you stop our plans, when our plans don't go like we think they should, that we would all be faithful to stop and to pause and to make sure that we are trusting you and your promises like we should and that you're not simply trying to get our attention. We thank you for the pictures of the gospel in this story. I pray that you would uh, encourage us as we are reminded that there's nothing good that we can do to make up for the bad that we've done. And we are thankful that we can stand before you much like Jacob stood before Isaac, deserving harsh punishment for our actions. And yet instead we find a father who extends grace and love to us and blessing to us. We praise you and thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.